All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. I am joined here uh, by Devin Hiller once again. Um, if you listened to the last episode, I uh, introduced him a bit there. Uh, a pastor at River City Church, where Joshua and I go, and the head of, um, or, or I should say the leader of the, of the, the program, uh, the seminary-type program that we're in. So glad to have him on the show. Uh, if you if you listen to the last episode, we tried to give, um, you know, a helpful understanding of reform theology, uh, some of the some of the background uh, that it comes from, kind of some of the hallmark ideas of reform theology, and we did that because we are specifically going to be um, defending on this podcast the reformed view of salvation and, and how it operates, how it looks, who's responsible for it, uh, kind of those questions. And in, in doing that, we are going to be defending the doctrines of grace, or uh, more commonly known, the five points of Calvinism. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the one of the, you know, this episode, I want, I want some preliminary remarks um, before we do that, uh, just to, I don't know, make some things clear, hopefully you know, clear up some misconceptions, give some historical background, stuff like that. And one of the things, you know, first of all, to note, when it comes to these doctrines or, or the Calvinist and the Arminian debate, these are really controversial. Um, and, and there can be a tendency for people in discussing uh, these doctrines to get very emotional. Um, and, oh, man, I just, you know, I, I've listened to certain things and even from both sides that they can actually be uh more so attacks against the other ad- adherence of the other view in- instead of uh simply a defense of the ideas right and we want to avoid that um we want to um kind of present these things humbly uh and we want to go to our bibles uh and look at what what the scriptures say about this and you know, we, we do, but with that said, we are going to argue and, and try to defend uh, the doctrines of grace. And, oh, Devin, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to add here that uh, we got, me and my wife got kicked out of a church be- because of holding to Calvinism. And I don't think that this should be that divisive of an issue. Right. And the point, actually, the point I want to make is that we got kicked out because they said that we don't believe in evangelism, which is actually not like we do wholeheartedly believe in evangelism. Uh, that's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what Calvinism is. So the point I want to make here is that we need to have deep conversations. We need to understand both sides of the argument, especially before you start making judgments and in, in, in this case, kicking people out of your church without even understanding what the mm-hmm. other person believes. So I think we should be able to have a healthy, loving dialogue about our differences over this. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I think, you know, there's just a broader problem in society in general where we've lost a bit, you know, uh, an ability to healthily disagree on something. Um, and, you know, for example, this is a thing where, um, you know, th- there, there's plenty of Christians that I might disagree with this on. Uh and I might look at their life, and, and they may not be a Calvinist, but they love God. Mm-hmm. Uh, they love the Scriptures. Yep. Uh, they, they want to understand what the Scriptures are genuinely teaching, and they show the fruits of repentance and, and faith in, in Jesus, and they love 
they love God, they love people. And I want to like, like, I want to affirm them obviously as Christians. And, and in this debate, you see a lot of people, uh, and it, it, perhaps on, on either side, but, um, just, just being nasty toward being nasty toward, uh, someone who disagrees with them or someone who might have a different viewpoint. But we want, we want to affirm obviously that, you know, we, we are going to argue in defense of these. Mm-hmm. We're going to argue for these doctrines. Um, and, and you know, hopefully if you disagree with us, that, that that's a healthy disagreement. Um, and you know, there, there's room for conversation there. Um, but we, we are going to argue, uh, and we're going to just, just in the way we argue, you know, we're not going to make emotional appeals or, you know, we're not going to argue just on what's, what's popularly held, but we want to go to the scriptures sincerely. We want to go to the scriptures humbly, uh, and we want to grasp what the scriptures teach and, and to hold that up and to proclaim it and to rationally argue from the scriptures um, as to what they teach. And now when it comes to these doctrines, we, you know, obviously we, we believe that the Bible teaches these or else we wouldn't be arguing them. And, and we believe that the Bible teaches them for a reason, that they're there for a reason, that it's not um, arbitrary. You know, I also believe, and maybe this is another um, just re- reflection on, on the society we live in, but it is okay if you come, maybe you're coming across some of these ideas for the first time and you're unsure or you need time to think through them. Like it is, it is okay to do that. And, and it should be encouraged to like think deeply and thoughtfully through these things mm-hmm. and to know that you don't you don't have to have a perfect or a complete grasp but um but we we are we are obligated to think through these things humbly to consider them and to to actually look at what the scriptures teach and you know to to, to, make, to even to go and search the scriptures with these things in mind uh, and, and, you know, do that and, um, don't, don't just, don't just trust what, what we have to say necessarily. Don't just trust what your pastor has to say, but, but go into the scriptures for yourself and, and look to affirm either what they're teaching or, uh, or, or if you see that it's different, um, it's, it's just important that you do those things and that you look into them. So, um, you know, I just, just, you know, some words of caution. We don't want to be divisive. We don't want to be controversial just for the sake of controversy. Uh, but we do believe that the Bible teaches these. Um, we don't believe that you have to believe these things to be a Christian. Like I said, I, I, I know personally Christians that do not agree with me on this issue that I uh, look to as, as very godly people and people that I respect and, and trust greatly. So, you know, those are, um, that that's an initial preliminary remark is that these can just get get controversial uh, and we want to discuss them um, the right way, so to speak. So when it comes to defending the five points of Calvinism, first of all, may, maybe a definition is helpful. Uh, the five points are often uh, represented with an acronym, uh, with the acronym TULIP, right? And maybe a quick quick definition will be helpful, but, uh, the acronym TULIP kind of represents it. The first one is, is, is total depravity is determined. We're going to, we're going to do an episode probably on each of these and discuss them in, in whole, but it, 
to introduce them here, uh, total depravity, um, which is really about the effect of sin on us. You know, it, it's really in, in response to that, a, a question I asked earlier is, does, since the fall, do, does sinful man ha- have the capacity uh, to turn to God and to trust in God for salvation? To what degree has sin affected us in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, all of that? And um, the, do- the doctrine of total depravity is, is not stating that human beings are as evil as they could be, but it is stating that apart from, apart from the work of God's Spirit, uh, that, that man is inclined towards sin and rebellion against God. That, that, that is his nature, right? So, so that's, that's kind of the idea. Uh, the next one is unconditional election. Um, and, and essentially this, you know, what we've talked about, uh, you, know, you know, you think about the doctrine of predestination election, kind of the same thing. But uh, essentially being that um, the, the basis for a person being saved, uh, not another person, um, is the electing purposes of God. Um, so, you know, the Bible talks about uh, the elect or, or the doctrine of election uh, or predestination, and essentially, um, just defining that quickly, that, that salvation is a work of God. Uh, it is a work that God has uh, decreed, um, and, and the, the, the deciding factor between a Christian and a non-Christian is... Um, like the, it is wholly and entirely work of God to save, to save a person. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to define these a little bit more, but then the next one being limited atonement, um, essentially saying that the, the atonement of Christ, uh, Jesus coming into, to, um, live a life and to, to die for sin on the cross, uh, that that was not a potential death for everybody, but that was an effectual death and, a, and an effectual atonement for the elect. Um, so that's T, U, and L, and then I is irresistible grace, so uh, uh, otherwise called efficacious grace, that, that God's special redemptive grace um, infallibly secures the salvation of those who receive it, that God, that God calls to himself, uh, his people. And then the last one, P, is perseverance of the saints, meaning that God's special redemptive grace will keep uh, and preserve uh, his people to the end in faithfulness. So um, that that's a quick. I mean, that, that's a really quick. We're gonna we're gonna try to define that a lot more later, um, and, and hopefully do an episode on on each one of those. Uh, but that is just is a quick introduction. Devin, you want to give some um, maybe some historical background uh, to the five points and kind of where they arose from, stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Yeah, when we look at these five points, we definitely want to be looking at Scripture to see if they're biblical. But we also have to understand that these didn't just come out of thin air, that there was a, a historical background of these five points. And so that's what I want to go into for a little bit here. So this all started with, uh, so Calvin, he had a school of theology where he trained pastors and sent them all over the place, which was really cool. And there was a guy named Jacobus Arminius who attended Calvin's School of Theology. I I don't know the specific years he was there off the top of my head, uh, but the late 1500s. 
and while he was there, uh, he had some disagreements with uh, the theology that was being taught, and so he eventually left, and through a lot of circumstances that we don't, we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty here, but he became a professor um, at, uh, where was it, Leiden University, I believe, in the Netherlands, and while he was there, the main thing that we need to know about what he taught was this idea of middle knowledge. Now, this is going to get a little bit technical, but we have to understand this because this is the million-dollar question. This is the core question that you have to ask when studying this. Okay, so to understand middle knowledge, we need to understand uh, necessary knowledge and the knowledge of decree. So necessary knowledge is God's omniscience. And what that means is that he knows all things. And, and, and Christians don't disagree about that. Like, this is not a, a disputed point. God knows all things. The knowledge of decree is that what God decides will happens. He bases what he decides on on his will. <laughs> So in other words, as we talked about last episode in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he, so he has necessary knowledge. He knows all things. And his knowledge of decrees means that he decides what will happen based on his necessary knowledge that he knows all things. So he's, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Those two things are not debated. Arminius came in and he proposed this... Uh, he didn't come up with it newly. He, he was reading uh, some Roman Catholic scholars, but he made it popular, this idea of middle knowledge. Um, and middle knowledge, it's called middle knowledge because he tried to put it right between uh, necessary knowledge and knowledge of decree. And he tried to put middle knowledge right in between them. But the idea of middle knowledge is that it is knowledge independence, independent of God's knowledge. That is, it is outside of God's will. And specifically in the conversation of salvation, it means that since man, or whoever the person is, independently chooses God, God will choose that man. So God chooses because man independently chose him first. God's foreknowledge of that event is based on an independent choice outside of the knowledge and will of God. And so when, when, you're, when you're thinking about this, this idea of middle knowledge this is the crucial question if you're wrestling through this. Is middle knowledge a biblical idea? Mm-hmm. You have to wrestle with that question. Yeah. You have to. Okay. Oh, oh go ahead. Well, I was, so so the, heart, the heart of the debate between, um, bet- on, on this question, every single denomination, everyone who takes the Bible seriously, has some doctrine of predestination and election. Uh, the Bible talks about it, so we have to deal with it in some way. Now, the difference between, um, really, really what the differences boil down to is, like, like Arminius is teaching with middle knowledge, um, is the idea that God foresees faith in a person and elects on that basis. So, in that case, you have what's referred to as conditional election, uh, that, that it's something in the person. So, when we think about the question of why is one person a Christian, why is one, one person not a Christian, it's something... Is something in the person. Um, now, the Reformed view, w- which we mentioned earlier, teaches or holds to unconditional election, 
which means that the deciding factor is not the will of the person, but God's um, sovereign electing purposes. Uh, and, th- and that's really, really the, the heart of the debate is who is responsible for salvation? Who is the, the impetus behind salvation or the driving force behind why a person is saved? So, so that is, and the heart of the question is that is this something that, that the, the sinful man does or is it something that, that, that God does? That, that is essentially the heart of the question. So, yeah, Devin, can you go ahead and keep going? Yeah, that's definitely the heart of the question and something that you need to wrestle with as you're thinking about these things. Going back to the history of this, so Arminius died in 1609, and in 1610, a group of his students put together an official protest, uh, which is called a remonstrance, which is just a, a general term for an official protest to... Uh, the Reformed Dutch Church there in the Netherlands. And in 1610, they put forward uh, what is known as, what became known as the Five Points of Arminianism. And I'll, I'll, I'll read them directly to you. Uh, so the first one is, th- these are not in the same order because this is, we're talking 400 years of history here. We've kind of changed it. The first one is, God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief, which is that idea of middle knowledge. The second one is Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. Third, man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. Fourth, this grace may be resisted. And fifth, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just, uh, sometimes you read so much and you read things like that that it's kind of funny. Like, we need to think about this more. We don't mm-hmm. know. And the reason they need to think about it more is because Arminius was really after assurance. He really wanted to have assurance of salvation. Um, a- and, I, you know, you can assume that if you want to be... Um, consistent with what you believe like you you can't hold to assurance of salvation with with those other points so that's where they were wrestling with that Um, but anyway so that those are the five points of the remonstrance uh, in so that was in 1610 and then in 1618 to 19 the Dutch Reformed Church responded with what is known as the Synod of Dort and they responded directly to all five of those and their response to those five points that I just read became known as the five points of Calvinism. And uh, Jackson just looked at them earlier, uh, famously known by the acronym TULIP, so total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. Uh, And I say all this because, like, we just need to know the history behind it, that that these didn't just, like, come out. One thing that I want to say, too, and what makes it clear in the history is that, and even just in your theology, if you want to be consistent, you have to either hold to one set of five or the other set of five. It is very inconsistent to, um, you hear a lot of people say, like, I'm a three-point Calvinist or a two-point Calvinist. Um, but that actually makes no sense historically. It makes no sense theologically. Um, so I just encourage you to, to think about how, how all of these fit together. And the main way that they fit together 
is within the doctrine of the Trinity is very important here. Because what we're saying is that the Father elects, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies. And so either that is effectual, that is, Jackson used that word earlier, it's effective, it works, or it's based on unforeseen faith in like the the five points of the Arminians. Um, But they have to go together. You can't take two of those out and hold to yeah. another one because then you're saying that the Trinity is at odds with one another. So, yeah. you, so my point is that you gotta you gotta keep them together. Yeah, and and in general, there there are systems of thought, uh, and I, and I hope as you see, um, you know, like you said, uh, you know, in, in the Arminian view, you have to be consistent. Well, in, in in the Calvinist view as well, like if you if you can demonstrate from the Bible, uh, you know, total depravity, for example. Well, this then it then it naturally falls into place the rest of them, or or if you demonstrate, um, you know you know that election is not based on foreseen faith, but but is on uh, specifically on God's purposes and and, and um, choice. The rest of the system falls into place as well, and when we think about these, it's important to it's important to understand that that, that they are they are uh, they they go together. You know, you you can't have have uh, a point without the rest of them. It, it exists uh, together and systematically. You know, it, it exists systematically. So maybe you know that maybe this will be helpful. I thought. Um, so I, I Charles Hodge. Uh, if you're familiar, if you're familiar with Charles Hodge, probably not. He was a a famous theologian, Princeton theologian in um, the ni- the 1800s. But he wrote he wrote a systematic theology, and I thought, you know, he gives a, a good statement of the reformed view of salvation uh he actually refers to it as the augustinian view um and maybe this maybe this will be helpful but but this kind of describes um the reformed view of salvation in general and and he says this he says the augustinian scheme he says and you don't he doesn't use the word scheme negatively um like like we often think of today the augustinian scheme includes the following points one that the glory of God or the manifestation of his perfections is the highest and ultimate end of all things. That's important. That's really important that w- when we think about uh, God's purposes in creation, all of this, the, the glory of God is, is the end goal, um, which is not disconnected from the good of, from our good. It's not disconnected from that. But, so, so point one, the glory of God or the manifestation of his perfections is the highest and ultimate end of all things. Two, for that end, God purposed the creation of the universe and the whole plan of providence and redemption. Three, that he placed man in a state of probation, making Adam their first parent, their head and representative. Four, that the fall of Adam brought all his posterity into a state of condemnation, sin, and misery from which they are utterly unable to deliver themselves. And, and that's that's the world we live in. Um, the fall of Adam brought all his posterity into a state of condemnation, sin, and misery, from which they are utterly unable to deliver themselves. Five, from the mass of fallen men, God elected a number innumerable. You know, you think about Revelation uh, 7, an uncountable multitude. God elected a number innumerable to eternal life and left the rest of mankind to the just recompense of their sins. So in, in that you have grace... And, and justice. There's no in, injustice. You have grace and justice. 
Six, that the ground of this election is not the foresight of anything in the one class to distinguish them favorably from the members of the other class, but the good pleasure of God. Seven, that for the salvation of those thus chosen to eternal life, God gave his own son to become man and to obey and suffer for his people, thus making a full satisfaction for sin and bringing in everlasting righteousness, rendering the ultimate salvation of the elect absolutely certain. Eight, that while the Holy Spirit in his common operations is present with every man so long as he lives, restraining evil and exciting good, his certainly efficacious grace and saving power is exercised only in behalf of the elect. Nine, that all those whom God has thus chosen to life and for whom Christ specially gave himself in the covenant of redemption shall certainly be brought to the knowledge of the truth, to the exercise of faith, and to perseverance in holy living unto the end. So that, I, I thought that's a really helpful summary of um, a, a you see there the whole picture. Uh, you know, the Bible describes this plan of salvation that God had for the fullness of time um, to be accomplished in Christ. And, and you see there the, the outworking of that plan and, and uh, the description of it. And that, that's really what, the, what, what Hodge calls the Augustinian scheme. Or, or the Reformed view of salvation is holding to, and part of that. And in that definition, you can see uh, the doctrines of grace in there. Uh, the, the, the total depravity, the unconditional election of innumerable, uncountable multitude uh, that we see in Revelation 7, um, that they will persevere to the end, that, that Christ was given specially and specifically for them, that the Spirit comes, uh, calls them from their sin, and brings them in, into grace and regenerates them and, 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 and causes them to be born again. That, that is um, a good statement of uh, the Reformed view kind of that we're going to be defending. So, so maybe that's helpful. Um, you know, I think a couple, you know, a couple more points on this just before we get into it. One thing you know, we mentioned R.C. Sproul in the last episode uh, and how helpful he is in, in some of these, um, in, in understanding some of these things. And, you know, R.C. made an argument one time uh, that I thought was really interesting, and I'm going to just bring it out as well for consideration. And, you know, obviously this, this doesn't prove that this is true, uh, as and we'll see why in a moment. But R.C. said, if you... If you ask me to name the five most influential Christian theologians in the history of the church, he said the five that I would give would be Augustine, uh, who we've mentioned before, um, John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, and then he said Thomas Aquinas. If you're familiar with Thomas Aquinas, he was, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of him, 13th century scholar. Um, and then Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century um, American scholar and pastor, uh, very brilliant. Um, you know, I heard, I heard one time Encyclopedia Britannica said that he was ca called him the greatest scholar in American history, which is a, a very, I mean, that, that shows you um, the influence of, of Jonathan Edwards. He was brilliant, brilliant. He wrote a lot on these subjects. 
but RC's point was if you, you know, though in his mind, those are the five most influential Christian theologians in the history of the Christian church. And what we see clearly, I think Aquinas is maybe up for debate a little bit. I haven't read Aquinas. I'm not sure, but RC made this argument, but Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Edwards are all vastly in agreement on this, on this doctrine. Um, on, on the reformed view uh, of salvation, the doctrines of grace. And the, the point of that being, if, if, if these five people agree on something, you should be careful uh, to disagree because these have been, these have been remarkably influential and, and brilliant Christian theologians. Now, you know, when we think about argumentation and how we argue things, that certainly doesn't prove our argument. Um, we want to go to the scriptures and and look at them. But I think that is something that's important for us to understand. And when we approach these issues, uh, especially people today, and we're like, we can approach these issues really disconnected from church history um, and things like that. And these are some important things to understand when going into it and when having this discussion. And that, that is a bit of the reason why, you know, we wanted to give, uh, um, you know, an, epi- an episode on Reformed theology specifically, and, and this episode, just to give some introdu- introductory thoughts to these things, because we want to think, we want to think deeply about these things. We want to know where they came from. Um, we want to know what the church has historically thought about them. Uh, you know, and it's important that that when we approach something like this, uh, that we do it thoughtfully, um, and that, that we consider consider aspects of it, and. Um, you know, kind of like I said, there, there's a lot that goes into this, and these are controversial, and we wanted to cover some bases kind of before we before we get into that, and to hopefully clear up some misconceptions um, and hopefully lay some of the foundation. So, you know, with that, um, I think that's going to be going to be pretty cl- pretty close to wrapping this up. Devin, do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah, just uh, what you said about history is really important. One that obviously scripture is our authority and foundation so we always want to go back there but i think when we get into this debate in the today uh, we forget that there's a history behind it and the history is clear that calvinism is the more popular the most common view in church history again that doesn't make it right that doesn't make it right um but it can feel like it's not because it's not the most popular today. Um, And then I just have one last thought in terms of the church history regarding the, the idea of middle knowledge was firmly rejected by the church. It was never, it was never declared heresy or unorthodox. So let me be clear about that. Um, But it was rejected. So remember this is 1610 um, when the remonstrance came out. And uh, I'm going to read from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is basically uh, what I'm about to read, I think, is word for word from the Westminster Confession from Mm -hmm. the 1640s. Um, But this is how it approaches the idea of middle knowledge. And remember, middle knowledge is that knowledge that is independent of God's knowledge. God foreknows an independent choice from someone to choose salvation. And this is what the London Baptist Confession says about well, it isn't directly saying it, but this is what it, it it's, it's sharply disagreeing with that. And it says, 
From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. Isaiah 46.10, Ephesians 1.11, Hebrews 6.17, Romans 9.15 and 9.18. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. So I just say that for consideration. Again, historically, the most important question that you need to answer as you're wrestling through this is middle knowledge a biblical idea. And we're sharing what we think about that, but really we want you to think deeply about it, study it on your own, Mm -hmm. study the scriptures. Do do the scriptures hold to this idea of middle knowledge? Um, Yeah, so think about it. Know that there's a historical context for these things. That's that's what I'd say. Yeah, yeah. The both West the Westminster Confession and that confession pretty pretty clearly refute that idea. Um, yeah, and, and have a very similar statement about it that, that God God decreed everything freely and unchangeably without reference to something else, um, and at the same time, not you know secondary causation is not taken away. Uh, humans still act freely and according to their um, nature and all of that. But the, but the important thing being that God, God's, God's decree, uh, his counsel by which he works, by, by which he works all things according to was by his free and sovereign choice. Um, and, and not based on something foreseen, uh, outside of his knowledge, um, that idea of middle knowledge. So, yeah, that, that's a, an excellent point. Um, and, yeah, again, you know, we hope, one of our great hopes in this is that you think about these things and consider them and study the scriptures and, and read them on your own. Uh, you know, uh, it would be a travesty to us if you accepted everything that we said but did not look and read the scriptures yourself or, or did, didn't even thoughtfully consider these things. So we would encourage you to do that. Um, I think the last thing, uh, maybe the last thing I'll say, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. But, you know, when we consider these, um, we think about the the fact that the Bible teaches these and the Bible doesn't teach things arbitrarily. Uh, it, it teaches things purposefully and with the intention that they would produce fruit in the lives of believers, for example. And, you know, I, I appreciate um, when, when we think about this idea of uh, some of these ideas, these are uh, serious, sometimes solemn, uh, rather deep truths. Um, but I like the way the Westminster Confession talks about it. And this is the modern English version, but it says that this, this important and mysterious doctrine of, of predestination must be treated with special discretion and care so that paying attention to and obeying the will of God revealed in his word, men may be assured that they have been eternally chosen from the, from the certainty of their effectual calling. In this way, the doctrine of predestination will elicit not only our praise, reverence, and admiration for God, but also a humble and diligent life, fully supporting everyone who sincerely obeys the gospel. So, uh, you know, you know, the reason that, that God is, revealed some of these truths for us is not for us to um, treat them flippantly or, or even to wield them arrogantly in some way, but specifically 
you know, you know, for one reason, when, when, when I think about this, what great comfort this brings to the Christian believer. Um, what, what great comfort to know that, uh, that, that salvation rests in the purposes of God um, and not just in, in myself. And, and, you know, you know, like, like I think for any of us, just a quick look at our own hearts, we should realize that, oh, how flippant and changing we can be, how, how much, how much better and more, assu- assu- more assurance and more comfort can we have knowing that, that God has worked these things out. Um, so, so it leads to comfort. It also leads to worship. Uh, it all, it also helps us to view God, uh, rightly as God, uh, that, that, that he is, he is God and he acts as God. Um, and, and not me, I, I'm not the one that's in control of everything, but the God is, and that's, that's comforting, uh, especially considering the, the character of God. Um, and then lastly, you know, th- these doctrines should lead us to great humility uh, and great, great diligence in the Christian life. You know, th- understanding these should, should produce a lot of fruit in our lives. And, and I, kn- I know in my life, they certainly have. Um, and they've done a, a great deal to, to humble me when I've needed humbling, but also to, to give me great assurance and comfort um, in, in the just in, in God and in the promises of God. Um, so yeah, I want to offer that up for consideration as well. So we're going to close here. Um, just one last thought here is that as you're speaking, I, I'm thinking of Arminius who was searching for assurance. Mm-hmm. He was a sh- searching for that comfort. Uh, and what's in maybe ironic is that it's found in Calvinism. Yeah, and you're you're spot on, Jackson. If you are a Calvinist, you should be the most humble person in the world. And if not, you don't fully understand what you are mm-hmm. saying that you believe. So I want to challenge you in that, and comfort you in the glorious truth that it's God. At the end of the day, Reformed theology is God saves sinners. Yeah, He deserves all the glory. Yeah, soli deo gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. That's right. Well, thank you guys for tuning tuning in. I hope that you will enjoy this series. I hope that it will provoke a lot of thoughtfulness um, and a lot of a lot of diligence to study the scriptures. And we we just hope that you will think through some of these things with us uh, and some of these some of these deep truths that the Bible talks about, uh, and that we'll we'll press on to find some some answers to some significant questions. So thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, hope you have a, a blessed day whenever you listen to this. Uh, God bless you, and and, uh, hopefully you tune in again. Thanks.